you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 in our time together this morning. Um, On our drive up, actually right after we got here, um, one of my daughters said, you know, Dad, this is kind of like our second church here, isn't it? I said, yeah, it really is. Um, we, we love being up here. And um, I just want you to know I counted a real honor for, for Tim to let me preach from this pulpit to you. Because, you know, I, I thought about it. If there's roughly, I don't know, 150, suppose there's 200 people here and I speak for a half hour on a good day. Um, that's 100 hours that you're investing in listening to me. That's a lot of time. So um, when you think of it like that, so I, I do count it an honor and I do seek to really uh, bring you what God has in his word. Um, Hollywood has um, coined a term for a kind of a movie, a genre, if you will. Maybe you've seen it on, the, on Google or on the internet or something. It's called um, a metaphysical second chance comedy. Have you heard that recently? Well, whatever. It is, it means this. It's a movie in which the laws of time and space are bent to give characters access to self-knowledge unavailable in ordinary circumstances. So, something like, maybe remember the classic, uh, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. You know, an angel appears. He sees something he could never have had access before. And it's a comedy, not because it's hardy har har but because he responds correctly the second time around to this revelation, this information that he gets. But they're all stories. And when Hollywood does it, you can mark it down, it's probably not true. Some of it is, I suppose. But, but the greatest metaphysical second chance comedy is the gospel, isn't it? When, when God himself yeah, the mystery. Because when you look at the Old Testament, how is it that God will come to reign and yet a human figure will come to reign? Because the God-man will come. That's why. How, how is it that, that there is both victory and intense suffering and payment? And how do you bring all that together? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, you read in the Old Testament and that's why Jews had such a hard time putting all this stuff together. It's all revealed in Jesus Christ. The greatest metaphysical second chance comedy, folks, would be us as Christians that have responded to Jesus Christ. And in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Paul says, you know, when it comes to Christ-centered living, where it all begins is being overwhelmed with that fact. Listen, uh, Listen to the first four verses. Yeah, there's imperatives here, no question. But notice the basis of those imperatives. Listen to what the text says. If then you have been raised up with Christ, and and I want you to notice as I read this, notice the times it talks about with Christ, okay? If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. 
Do you see what he's saying? He says, you know, when you think of Jesus, you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Doug Finkbeiner has died, been buried, and raised with Christ. In other words, I am so united to him that what he did there on the cross was given to my account. It's unbelievable, isn't it? So he says, you've been united with Christ into his death, his burial, and resurrection. And now, you are hidden with Christ in God. Like, what in the world does that mean? I thought I was here. Well, I am here. But you know what? My salvation is so secure that it is bound up in Christ, in God. Isn't that wonderful? We are a secure people. You've been united to Christ. He as the intercessor who's at the right hand of the Father, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what it means to be at the right hand of the Father. He is also the one who intercedes for you, and you are absolutely secure in Him. And not just that, he says here in verse 4, but when Christ, who is our life, (laughs) He is our life, when He's revealed, we will be revealed with Him in all of His glory. Isn't that amazing? I mean, right now, I pray to Him. I'm secure in Him. My position is, is in Christ. That's absolutely true. But one day when he does come back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I will be so connected to him that his glory will be all around me and people will see it and you will see it. And we, it, it I don't know what it all means, folks. I don't know what it all means. I know it's really good. Isn't that the truth? Our lives are totally bound up in Christ. So what Paul says is, if that's true, if you've already been died, raised, and, and your life is hidden with Christ, he's coming one, one, that back one day, and in reality, physically, you will be revealed with him, and all, the, all that's going to happen. If that's true, how then should we live? And what he says is, generally, what I want you to do is, I want you to set your mind, or set your affection on things above. That's an attitude, isn't it? It's an orientation. And then I want you to seek the things above and not the things on the earth. Now, let me just say this. When he says don't seek the things on the earth, he doesn't mean don't live on the earth. Here we are. doesn't mean I should no longer be a husband and pay the bills and go to soccer games, and which we're getting into again, and all that stuff. I mean, it's part of life, isn't it? But what he means is this. Don't live on the earth in such a way that you live as if God is not the central factor of all of life. That's what he means. So seek the things above. You ever hear that old adage, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? I know what that means. We've all met people like that that are kind of quirky. Okay. But in reality, is that possible? This text is saying the only people that are earthly good are those that are heavenly minded. Think of a young man gets engaged to a young lady. He knows he's going to marry her in a couple months. He thinks about her. He is oriented toward her. He is concerned about her. He seeks her by talking to her and having dates with her and doing everything he can do with her. 
Everything in his life changes. His buddies call him up and say, hey, we're getting together and doing this kind of thing. He says, I, I'll be tied up that night. Well, where are you going to be? I'll be with my girlfriend. All right, well, we're going to, hey, we're, I, 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 I'm really not interested. Well, you were always interested in this before. Nah, I, I'm really thinking about her now, <laughs> you know? It's what happens with a young guy, doesn't it? Maybe, I don't know how else to say this, maybe when he's around the guys, he belches and does all kinds of gross things. But, but now, now that he's marrying this girl, everything kind of changes. You're in a group and he holds it in. And, and he, I mean, he's just, he's just different. And, you know, it's because of her. You know, his guys are like, what's up with Joe? You know, like, what's up? But doesn't something change? I mean, he's oriented to her. He's thinking about her. He set his affections and his mind there. And he seeks every opportunity he can to be with her. How much more Christ? If this is who he is, this is what he's done, this is what he will do, he says, you know what? Everything you do on earth, you think about Jesus. See, there's only two orientations possible in this text. There's a heavenly orientation and there's an earthly orientation. And if we are God's people, everything we do should be from a heavenly orientation. Okay, fair enough, Doug. I get the gist. Set your mind there, be oriented there. Everything you do, it's all about Jesus. Okay, fair enough. What's that look like in life? In verses uh, 5 through 17, he begins to tell us. Now, we won't be able to answer the question all this week, or else I'd have to keep you here for an hour, and I certainly won't do that. So we'll kind of answer it in two parts. We'll look at verses 5 to 17 in our time together this morning, and the next week we'll pick up and look at how it manifests itself in our homes, at the workplace, and in our neighborhoods. So we'll kind of phase into that next week, this week, Primarily, what's it look like in my personal life? And what's it look like in my church life with fellow bro- uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? That, that, that's really where he focuses in these verses. So, so you know, because I could just kind of tell you, look, you know what you need to do? You need to set your affection on Jesus and you need to seek his things. And you can say, all right, man, let's go for it. Which means... Uh, specifically what you see and this text tells us so let's try to unpack some of those things in our time together what does it mean then to live this christocentric life both individually and corporately as a body of christ in specific ways and and what he does here is this in verses 5 to 11 he's going to give you the negative because they look um what i mean is it, it means that you're not doing this Because this is the way the earth, the world lives apart from the enabling grace of the spirit. Okay, this, this, so like what I want you to do is is separate yourself from that. And then in verses 12 to 17, I want you to give yourself to this, both in your personal life and in your life as a body of Christ. So first of all, he's going to say negatively what we shouldn't be doing. And he's going to, um, he's going to use two images. It's really interesting. The, the first image is put to death. Um, and the second image is take, taking something off, like taking off a coat or something like that and laying it aside. But both images means you separate yourself. I mean, you can put things to death in a variety of ways. Sometimes what you can do is just kind of starve something, you know? 
and and so but the point is you separate yourself from it he uses those two images let me uh let me read the other thing i want to say is this and this this i find to be really interesting when paul talks about what we should be living and what we shouldn't be doing that which is manifested by by the old style of living um what are the specific things that he raises here and you know what he's going to talk about in this, in this text? It's really interesting to me about what we shouldn't be about. He's going to talk about issues related to sexuality on the one hand and issues related to our speech on the other. Do you know how much people struggle with those things, folks? I mean, if you want to put your finger on, okay, like where do people struggle when you talk about separating yourself from a lifestyle that's marked by not knowing God all right, Paul, what are you going to talk about? Paul says, I'm going to talk about your sex life, sexual issues on the one hand, and I'm going to talk about speech on the other. You know what, folks? They touch all of us, don't they? So look at what he says. First of all, he's going to say, I want you to separate yourself from sexual perversions. Don't feed it. Starve it, if you will. Notice what he says. Verse 5. Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Now, I'm reading from the New American. Just, just so you know, the word earthly, the word body is not there. I mean, that's kind of something that they figure it's probably saying. I, I think what he's saying here is, what I want you to do is, I want you to put to death the members or the lifestyle or the way people live who don't know God. It's the members of an earthly lifestyle is the idea. Okay, so probably a better way to understand it. So therefore, what I want you to do is put to death the members of the earth which are represented by immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which, is, which amounts to idolatry. You know what I find to be interesting in this text? Sometimes Paul, when he describes things, starts from the outside and moves in. Sometimes he moves from the heart and moves out. In this passage, he starts from the outside and moves in. And he says, you know what I want you to do? The world around us is a world that's marked by impurity and immorality. It, it, it's a world that is marked by, uh, in the Greek, it's the word porneia. We get the word pornography from it, don't we? And, and what he's saying is, it, it takes... God has a beautiful plan for sexuality, doesn't he, folks? It's, a, it's, a, it's within the context of marriage. And when that fire is expressed within that context, it is beautiful beyond description. Nothing on earth can counter it. It's, that's God's design. But he says, when you go outside of my bonds, within those bonds, have at it, what he says in Scripture, basically, you know. But outside of those bonds... Uh-uh. So, I don't care what our world says. Is it all right for a man to marry a man? No. Will it ever be? No. That's perversion, plain and simple. Women with women, no. Premarital sex, no. Adultery, no. It's all outside of that stuff. So, beware immorality. Beware this porn pornographic kind of lifestyle. And then, so he moves from the outside, but he moves in. Look at what he says here in the text. Notice what he talks about. Passion, evil desires, and greed. Why do people go outside of the bounds? 
Why are we tempted to go outside of the bounds? Because at the end of the day, it's a hard issue. You know what greed is when it's all said and done? Greed is I want. I want that now. Sounds like a three-year-old. But I say it as a 50-year-old too. Don't we? And it starts with greed and passion and evil desire. Interesting. Sometimes what I want is innately wicked and sinful in and of itself. Sometimes what I want is a very natural desire, but I want it so much that I displace God in the process. Makes me think of a, a woman, true story. Happened years ago in another state, so nobody here would know her or anything like that. So I'm not divulging anything. Because of her upbringing, she lived her life trying to find acceptance from men and love from men. And so in the process, she would place herself, herself in sexual contexts, which became immoral and inappropriate. Okay? The way she lived her life. She went to a secular psychiatrist, and in that process, she became a Christian. And that psychiatrist actually gave her some good advice. Pointed out, look, you can't live your life for men. You know, and maybe a little bit of a feminist edge. You know, get away from men anyway. They're, you know, men are men. And instead, you should be investing your life in a career and find your meaning there. You know what she said coming out of the whole experience? She said, you know, my counselor did a good job identifying the issue of my heart that I was living for. That, now, to, to want to be loved by people, is that wrong in and of itself? No. But what happens when that rules us and controls us, folks? You see the problem? And, and, and she said, but the problem is all my counselor is asking me to do is to replace one idol, which is what greed is, with another idol called the idol of career and find my significance and meaning there. And what she said was, I found all that in Christ. Now, do I want to be married? Yeah. But I don't have to be married. That's the difference, isn't it, folks? You see? And in this text, he goes to the very core of our heart. He exposes both greed, things I want which are innately sinful, and things which I want that might not be innately sinful, but I want them too much. And in the process, I displace God. And Paul says, you know what? If there is no God, that's the only way to live. Isn't it? Honestly, if God did not exist... And this is all charade. Shouldn't you live this way? You only go around once in life, for goodness sakes. So live for yourself. Get what you want. And don't worry about what people call it. It makes a whole lot of sense to me. If this is all there is. But Paul says, that's the old lifestyle. That's a world that doesn't know God. And he says, you know what? I want you to put off, and I want you to put it off by going deep into your heart. And when you go deep in your heart, find out what is competing with him. And, and put it aside. And let him rule at the very core of your soul. So he talks first about this issue of sexuality. Notice how he explains this former lifestyle. Um, in verse... Um, Verse 6, for it is account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. But you're not living in them anymore. Who are you living in now? 
am with now. Christ. Do, do, do you see? And so he says, look, look, when this is all you had, this is what you did. But you got him. He's yours. You, matter of fact, your life is hidden with him. You're lost in him. He's coming back for you one day. And his glory, you're going to be bound up in that whole thing, whatever that looks like. That's the reality. So why would you want to live this lifestyle that is just under the wrath of God? That was, that this is the, the, the people who are lost and don't know Christ are on a crash course to hell, folks. Why do we want to live that lifestyle again? So he says, what I want you to do is I want you to say no. But not just in your deeds and your heart. God, what is it that I ultimately want? What do I worship? May I worship you at the very core of my soul. Okay, Paul. All right. Man, that's a tough one. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about speech. Notice what he says here in verses 8 through 11. Oh, um. The other image I was thinking about, kind of the negative put off. Do you remember, the, maybe you didn't see it, whatever. I, I, I thought it was a pretty good movie. It was on several years ago called A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. Anybody ever see that thing? Okay, you know, not endorsing everything in it, of course. But, but you know, it, it, and it was the true story of this guy who was brilliant in, in mathematics. At, at, I think he was at, he was at Princeton. And, uh, but he had this terrible struggle for much of his life with hallucinations where he would literally see people all the time, you know, and, and he would have conversations with them and they just seemed as real as reality itself. And, and the whole story was this struggle as he kind of came to recognize, no, they're not really there. And, and, and I've got to focus on what's on reality itself. And there are some humorous parts and sad parts along the way. But, but I've often kind of thought about that movie when I think about a text like this. We, we, we walk around and we, the ultimate reality is living in the light of his glory and in his presence and being lost in his person, isn't it? That's the ultimate reality. But I got all these hallucinations around me that are always begging me to say, hey, come here, do this. What do you think about it? And I want to enter into conversation with them and if I'm not careful, they can control the way I live. Isn't it true? Yeah. And so... In some sense, that's what we struggle with. I, I, I mean, I, I, I you know, flipped on my computer. Of course, everything comes up, and it shows you all the latest movies and all the blah, blah, and all the kinds of things. And, you know, if you're, not like, if you're like me, sometimes, you know, I'll click on this and see what's over here. And before I know, and, and look, it's life, and so you're going to contact that stuff. I understand that. But, but if I'm not careful sometimes, I begin saying to myself, maybe that's really life. You know what I'm saying? And then what happens is you hear somebody sing or you hear a message or whatever and you say, no, 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 come on, come on, come on, man. No, no, that's, that's the voices. This is reality. And so he says, look, in this old way of living, perverted sex rules the day, but not for God's people. Destructive, dishonest speech rules the day. Look at what he says in verses 8 to 11. But now you also put them all aside. Okay, and the expression here is almost like taking off a coat. But once again, it has the idea of separating yourself from. Put them all aside. And, and, and I want you to notice, like I told you before, remember how I said sometimes Paul will move from the outside in? In this passage, he's going to move from the outside, inside 
out. He starts out by talking about anger, wrath, and malice or, or ill will. Where, where does anger, wrath, and malice always begin, folks? It's always in the heart, isn't it? Why is it that I look at you and express myself the way I do? Because, man, I am ticked off at you. So he, so he goes on to say, um, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And here's the point. If in my heart, I am ticked off at Tim, and he just, he bugs me. Man, he gets me mad. And there's ill will between us. And sometimes it's anger, which I hold in, and sometimes it's wrath, which I want to just dump out. I'm just tip. You know what I do about him? Sometimes I slander him. So I see you, and I say, do you like Tim's that? I know, I know, I, me too. That's what he said. I, I don't know what he meant by that, but you know Tim. What am I doing? Because in my heart I have something against him, I will slander him when he's not around. Or, if I'm not so much of a coward, I will be abusive in my speech directly to him, which is what he says. So sometimes we use kind of this covert attack, right? or we just we talk about him because we're cowards. I'll tell, you, I'll tell him how I feel, man. We dump all over him. Or I dump all over him. And Paul's saying, you know what? Doug, when you do that, you're just doing what comes natural. You're just living in a world that doesn't know God. Because that's what they do. Because at the end of the day, who's it all about? It's all about me. And so if you don't do what I want you to do, I get ticked off at you and I slander and abuse you. Wow. Have you ever seen that, folks? Have you ever done it? It's what comes natural. It's, 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 it's a way of living as if Christ is not an issue. And he says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to put that aside. He goes on to say in verse 9, not only is he concerned about destructive speech, he's concerned about dishonest speech. Do not lie one to another. Um, why do we lie? Uh, fear. I mean, we have a whole bunch of reasons why we lie. But I don't want you to get too close. I don't want to admit to you what I've done. Coming to church, or, or you know, happens happens at home. Somebody breaks something, and uh, well, it could be me. It could break something, and my wife says, "Hey, what happened there?" And I, you know, no, what can I do in that moment? I can say, "You know, honey, I bet it was one of those kids." And they they do that stuff. And why am I doing that? Because at the end of the day, I don't want to tell her the truth. Because if I tell her the truth, she's going to find out what I did. It's going to cause all kinds of problems in my relationship. But what I don't realize is, whenever I lie. It always distances me from my wife. Even if she believes it. Because lying at the end of the day never promotes intimacy. Never. Never. Because I don't want you to get close. I don't want you to know who I am or what I've done. The last thing I want to do is confess anything to you. No way. Or, I don't want you to know what I'm really struggling with in my heart. So I don't want to be vulnerable around you either. So I straight arm you. How's it going, Doug? Fine. How's it going for you? Okay. Because <laughs> I don't want to admit the fact that I'm weak. And yet we're weak sinners. That's what we are. So we, we try to live our life ignoring who we really are. 
And God places us in a body so that we can finally have someone who can say, Doug, you've done that, it's wrong. And I can say, yes, I have. Will you pray for me and help me? That's what the body's about. Or for me to come up to you and say, you know what? I am struggling. I don't know how to do this. I'm struggling with my kids. I'm struggling with my wife. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Man, that takes a risk. Because you could look at me and say, well, like, what's up with you? Right? But look at what he says here in this text. It's very interesting when he talks about honesty. Why is it that we should be honest? Do not lie one to another. Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now, without getting into all kinds of discussions, another way you can understand that is this. Since you have laid aside the old humanity. There is an old humanity way of living and we learned it from Adam. And what he says is, you know what? When you came to Jesus Christ, you don't have to live in that kind of humanity anymore. So you've laid aside the old humanity with its evil practices. You've put on the new humanity, which is being renewed in, in, in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. You know what he says? He says Paul says, look, look, the old speech, dishonesty and destructive speech, that's the old humanity in Adam. But you're being recreated as a group in the new humanity. In this new humanity, God himself is in, in the process of recreating it and designing it and transforming it. And when you look at this humanity, get over the race issue because there's no Jew and, and no Greek. Just forget that. It's not about that. You are one in Christ. And don't say, yeah, but how about socioeconomic status? Chuck that thing too. No slave, no free. Forget it, man. Well, you know, there's bad people and then there's really bad people. There's barbarians and then there's Scythians. I mean, the Scythians were the barbarians' barbarian. Everybody knows that. I mean, you read historically, the Scythians made the barbarians nervous. But he says, you know what? In this new humanity, there's not anybody that's so bad that they can't be transformed by Jesus Christ. There's none of that. You know what there is? There's Christ. He's it. And he's transforming you. And you don't have to live with destructive speech. And you don't have to live with sexual perversity. Because you guys are a new humanity. Oh, I'm not indicating that you guys aren't and you guys are. I, I'm just using the term. So please, don't take it personal. I, it's just a, you know, it's a pedagogical thing here, okay? So I'm not saying this side's better than this. But do you know what I'm saying, folks? I mean, he's just saying, look, think of Jesus. Think of what he's recreated. Think of who you are. You don't have to live like that. All right, all right, Paul. I get it, man. Put off that old humanity. Got it. We're a new people. Jesus is central. Fair enough. So what is it that we're supposed to do that? All right, Paul says, I'll tell you. What, what is it that you should put on? Look at verses 12 to 17. And one of the things I found to be interesting, I was reading through this again this week. One of the things that really interests me, is, especially in the second part of this section, is he talks about um, I need to talk quickly here, too. I'm just looking at my watch. Okay, so relax. I'll speed up this quick here. Um, 
peppered all the way through this text is thanksgiving. Which I find to be really interesting. Because what he's not saying is kind of like grunt and just kind of bear it, grin and bear it. Like, like oh, I've got to stop doing this. And all right, here I am. What am I supposed to do, Jesus? Is that, is that the... No, no, Paul's saying, look, as you are over here, man, you are a joyful people. Because this is living the way you were designed to be. So there's so much to be thankful for. You know, you're really not giving up anything. You, you really want that? Where did that take you? Where was it taking you? So very quickly, what's he saying in this passage? Um, he says four things, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to say them rather quickly. The first one is this. Let the love of Christ move you. In verses 12 to 14. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. You know what he's saying? God says, you are my people. You're the ones that my affection is drawn toward. That's who you are. What I want you to do is put on a heart. And once again, he's going to talk both about internal and external. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Do we need patience one with another? Oh man, absolutely. I mean, we are a pain in the neck people sometimes. That's the bottom line. I know that. I am, you are, it's just the way it is. And so Paul's saying, I want you to reorient. And the reorientation is not self. The reorientation is Christ. And so I move toward people as Christ has moved toward me. Christ in his humility. Christ in his patience. Christ in his kindness and his compassion. I move toward people in that same kind of way. Look at what he goes on to say. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. I kind of like that. Because Paul's a realist. And you know what he realizes? He realizes that if you put people together, they're going to sin against each other. That's just the way it works. And so you either have to forbear with people or you've got to forgive them. Those are your only choices. Think about it in the home. There are things my kids do that I just kind of roll my eyes, zip the lip, and go on. And it doesn't, it doesn't affect me at all. I just kind of forbear. And you do that sometimes. But sometimes there's things I can't live with because I think it's hurtful to them or it just bugs me too much that it's affecting our relationship. So I got to go to them and I can say, you know what, this is wrong and this has really hurt dad. And then there needs to be repentance and forgiveness, right? So he says, look, in the body of Christ, there's going to be problems. Sometimes you forbear. And if you can't forbear, go and deal with it. Talk to the person so you can forgive. It's just the way it works. Okay. So, but once again, it's what Jesus has done for us. He forbears and he forgives. Um, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint with, uh, against anyone, just as the Lord Jesus forgave you, so also should you do. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It just kind of holds everything together. I, I saw something advertised on TV the other day. I don't think I'm going to buy it, but it was interesting. Apparently, guys, it's something that you can buy. It's like an undershirt 
did you see this thing advertised? And they showed this guy beforehand, and he's got this big pot belly, and then he puts on this undershirt. Man, he just like looks really good. <laughs> My wife said, hey, what do you think about that, honey? Well, what do you mean, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, and I'm not going to buy one, and I certainly don't have one on right now, but, but, <laughs> but that's what love does, doesn't it? It's kind of hold all that stuff together, doesn't it? It's, just like, it's what it does. It's just, so if I can just say it in one word, I can say compassion and kindness, or I can just say this. Just love. Just love. So let the love of Christ who has forgiven us, let that move you. Let the peace of, peace of Christ rule you. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's where it always starts. To which indeed... You were called in one body and be thankful. You know what I like to have happen at a group lots of times? I like the piece of Doug to roll. The only problem is I'm dealing with people who want themselves to rule too, their peace. And this text says, no, 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 Doug. When you have conflict with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's not about getting what you want. It's not even about a truce. It's about working so that Christ gets what he wants. So let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It starts here with an attitude and it spills over into how I treat people in the body of Christ. So let the love of Christ move you. Let the peace of Christ rule you. Let the gospel of Christ permeate you. Look at verse uh, 16. Let the word of Christ, and the, the idea of the word or the message, it's clearly talking about the gospel. Let the, the, let the gospel of Christ, if you will, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Folks, it's what we did today. I mean, I, I'm trying to teach and admonish and talk to you about Christ beginning of the service we sang i just i love to come to this church and join in worship with you guys it's just it's just it's just but you know what you know what i mean you just kind of i'm i'm you know i mean i tend to be a little bit more reserved so my hands are you know tim's tim's doing all kinds of things up in front of me and stuff and, and but we're all loving jesus aren't we however you express it you're just saying wow lord just fill us with you and so when people teach and preach, talk Jesus, the gospel, and just, yeah, just let the gospel of Christ permeate everything you do. Sing about Him, talk about Him, one-on-one, -on -one, in groups, just Jesus everywhere. Amen, and lastly, let the pleasure of Christ shape all that you do. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. But you know what I want you to do? You are a new people. You're secure and safe in Christ. He's recreating us as individuals and as a group. And I want you just to keep Christ central in all that you do. Um, years ago, Somebody approached uh, John Wesley, actually, one of his friends, 
lost man, invited him over to his house, wealthy beyond description. The man took him into his home and they looked around the house and Wesley was impressed with the paintings on the wall and the, the floor and just gorgeous. They walked out and there were gardens. The gardens were gorgeous, just manicured perfectly. You know, went on for acres and acres and acres and they walked through and they talked about old times and his old friend said to Wesley, you know, you're a sharp guy. You could have had something like this. And Wesley, who had committed himself to gospel ministry, very, very quickly answered and said, yeah, perhaps, but there's more. Folks, there's more. Set your affections on things above. Be lost in Christ so that you might live for Christ. And that's Paul's appeal. Not this. But this, because of who I am, Jesus says. Lord, thank you for your word.